Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20. Today in this passage we have an opportunity to see in the middle of incredibly difficult, scary circumstances between two men whom we've already been introduced to how they can face those circumstances of fear, the prospect of imminent death, loss of position, and the list goes on and on and on. How they can face that because, because of what God has done and what they trust him with. In 1 Samuel chapter 19, we ended there with Saul's unbridled attempts to kill David, being actually overpowered by God's Holy Spirit in what has to be one of the strangest scenes in the whole Bible at the end of chapter 19. In other words, God himself, without any human intervention or other circumstances, in the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, overcame the three groups of men that Saul had sent to Ramah to take David and ultimately kill him. And then when Saul came himself to do what the three groups of men he previously sent didn't do or couldn't do, the Holy Spirit overcame Saul as well, thus diverting Saul's attention from his evil intentions toward David for a little while. The immediate result of Saul um, intervening personally to take David and get rid of him confirmed to David how desperate his plight was. David now knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Saul's evil hostility towards him was very, very real. Chapter 20 begins with David immediately seeking out the one man he knew he could trust who was Saul's own son, Jonathan. The story in chapter 20 has often been used to mainly focus on what good friendships should be like. But that's not the main theme. That is not the message that God is primarily concerned for us to hear. That is not the message that our hearts need to be open to this morning. The story of their friendship is used to see something much, much more important. We need to see here what a covenant is and how the covenant between Jonathan and David that was formulated back in chapter 18, verses 1 through 5, is now reaffirmed and extended in the midst of the fiery trials in their lives at this point. The situations these two men face in this chapter help us see several different aspects 
about their own covenant between them. But their covenant points to the bigger covenant that God makes with his people. In other words, if you are genuine believers, we can benefit tremendously and grow in faith and encouragement as we better understand how God's covenant with his people in and through his son, Jesus Christ, first provides a source of help and encouragement in times of great uncertainty. And secondly, how it proves to be a solid ground needed to act with uncommon faithfulness. And thirdly, it reminds us that we as God's people may have to make some very costly commitments. And fourth, God's covenant provides peace in the middle of confusion and chaos. In other words, this chapter packs a punch that each and every one of us needs and each and every one of us needs to think about and each and every one of us needs to stand on these truths. And by the way, standing together is one of the themes in here. The big picture is this. This is all communicated, those four things about how God's covenant works and is available to us. It's all communicated in four specific scenes in this chapter, which really helps us kind of get through it, break it down so it's clear. Scene number one is David before Jonathan, verses one through nine. And we see here especially how God's covenant provides a source of help and encouragement in times of great uncertainty. Scene two is in a field. We could say this is in the field part one. And this scene shows us how God's covenant proves to be the solid ground needed to act with uncommon faithfulness. The third scene is at the table. And this shows us how God's covenant reminds us that we as God's people may have to make some costly, costly commitments. And then scene four is back in the field. This is in the field part two. And this shows us how God's covenant provides peace in the middle of great confusion and chaos. I'd be very surprised if anybody sitting in this place today could could truthfully and genuinely say to your own heart, well, I don't need to hear that. Our heart should have been already tugging at those four aspects of how God works with us because our needs are great. If you are able, would you please stand? I'm going to read a psalm. Psalm 146. 
doesn't refer specifically to this particular situation here in 1 Samuel, but see what you think. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth to see in all that's in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord walks, watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There is no intermission in this play, this story. But there are four scenes. Scene one is David before Jonathan in verses 1 through 9 of 1 Samuel 20. Remember, this is how God provides a source of help and encouragement in times of great uncertainty. After seeing firsthand Saul's repeated attempts to kill him, David now knows he cannot write off Saul's behavior as intermittent evidence of his quote-unquote condition. David had managed to escape after Saul had found out he was with Samuel. And he went straight to who? He went straight to find Jonathan. Chapter 20 begins with David asking Jonathan what he did wrong to so infuriate Saul. Maybe he could fix it if he just knew what exactly to fix. Jonathan, however, doesn't seem completely convinced that his father is really doing all this. David knows that Jonathan shouldn't expect Saul to keep him posted since Saul also is so mad. He's so infuriated over his own son's committed friendship and support to David. Back and forth, this conversation goes here in verses 1 through 9. And Jonathan finally tells David in verse 4, Whatever you say, I will do for you. Who's the last person that told you that when you didn't know where to turn? This is heavy. This is weighty. David then proposes a test situation 
so they can tell what Saul is really up to, especially concerning Jonathan and his friendship commitment. That's in verses 5 through 7. You ever do that? Remember, David is a warrior. He's a soldier. Strategy comes naturally to him. And he just wants to have a situation here that confirms what he knows is already true, but to help Jonathan see it as well. David's not going to show for dinner. We go, what's the big deal about that? Well, this was a special monthly occasion we know from the text when the new moon appears. He's not going to show. In other words, he has a place at this table, remember? And he wants to hear from Jonathan about how Saul responds to that. And as we go through this first scene, we should be asking... We know probably the technical answer, but but we need to be asking something, and that is, why in the world would David turn to Saul's son when Saul himself was the one who was threatening David's life? Simply because Jonathan, chapter 18, verse 3, had made a covenant with David. That's why. This is not a handshake promise. This was a covenant in which the Lord was witness to and the Lord was the guardian of its promises. They did it before the Lord. And David refers to it again here in verse 7 and 8 of our text. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? This is a complicated mess. The Lord is seen as the covenant guardian. In verse 23, we see this, when Jonathan reminds David that the Lord is between you and me. That's what that language is referring to. Saul refers to it, as we see in verses 30 and 31 here, Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame? Saul knows about this. And the chapter ends with the strong covenant parting words of Jonathan in verse 42. Go in peace because we have, listen, sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between you and me and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Between you and me. In the name of the Lord. This is a covenant that is very serious that God has a huge part in. It's not just some silly promise between two school kids cutting their fingers and kind of messing the blood together. This this is heart matter. 
This is a forever matter. This is God is their matter. So here in the first scene, before Jonathan, David expects Jonathan to act with steadfast love. That's what the words in the ESV deal kindly refer to. We've talked about this so much when we've been in the Old Testament. Chesed. In the ESV, it's always translated as steadfast love because it is referring to God who cannot break a promise. God is the one who pledges. David expects Jonathan to act with steadfast love towards him because of their covenant. Telling Jonathan in verse 8, For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. This chesed is love, compassion, and affection, yes. But it also has a connotation, very strong connotation, of loyalty, of reliability, and faithfulness. Not just love, but loyal love. Not just kindness, but dependable kindness. Not just affection, but affection that has committed itself. The reason David appeals to Jonathan for help and counsel to deal kindly with him is because Jonathan has promised to do so in a covenant of the Lord. Jonathan's covenant itself was an expression of love, was it not? As he approached David with this before. Jonathan's covenant, in other words, was initiated by his love for him. Their kindred spirits. He recognized in David a commitment to the same God. The covenant partner then rests in the security of that promise and may appeal to it, as David does. I hope you're making the connections between their covenant and the new covenant. Let me say that last thing again. The covenant partner then rests in the security of the promises made by the one who initiated the covenant and may appeal to it, as David does right here. I will never be able to read the phrases and the sentences in Scripture again about seeking the Lord without seeing David running for his life, going to his friend who had initiated a covenant with him, and he's relying on him to keep it as he goes to him for help. In times of trouble. That's the picture that God wants us to keep. So what's the message of this first scene? In times of confusion and trouble, you take yourself to the one person who has made a covenant with you.
Are you listening, husbands and wives? Yeah, that one is one of these as well. We won't go there. But you've got to keep it in mind. In confusion and trouble, you take yourself to the one person who has made a covenant with you. For David, it was Jonathan. Nehemiah 1.5 And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Psalm 13.5 But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. These kind of passages are all over scripture. We could stay here the rest of the time just reading those kinds of passages. I think that means we should rely on the Lord and see the connection that we have with the people that have known him down through history. When you seek this kind of steadfast love, you simply find yourself in the arms of Jesus Christ. It's that simple. Now, Scene two, they go into the field. This is in verses 12 through 23. And this shows us how God's covenant proves to be the solid ground needed to act with uncommon faithfulness. First, there's an obvious reason verses 12 through 17 are in this story. But the story itself doesn't need verses 12 through 17. You can go straight from verse 11 to verse 18 and not miss a beat as far as the story, the action part. Why then does the Lord want us to know what's in verses 12 through 17? Because they stick out and this is the heart of the whole matter. They must hold special significance since they are included. And let me give you an example of this on the negative side. You can tell instantly where a commentator's heart is and how his belief really stands before the Lord God Almighty by how he handles this question about why these verses are here. You would not believe how many say, oh, this must be, have been inserted later because it doesn't fit with the flow of the story. Ridiculous. This is the heart of it. But see, when you don't handle the word of God like God wrote it, then you can come up with all sorts of creative nonsense. And believe me, there's a lot of nonsense about this part. Perhaps it's because it's so convicting. Perhaps it's because it shows so much about the heart of God towards the people that he came to save through his son Jesus. In other words, these verses must carry more weight than just knowing what happens in the next story. That's how you handle this text. In other words... This covenant is really unusual. 
It's unique. Why? If you were the crown prince, you would you just hand over your place and position to your rival and then promise to protect him? We could probably count on one hand the time that has happened down through history with a crown prince who has a rival to the throne that he's supposed to inherit. This is strange. The normal procedure would be to get rid of David. Jonathan's actions were anything but politically correct. Could Jonathan be said to actually be seeking first another kingdom? Ooh, now we're seeing it. Which kingdom was he seeking? But Jonathan then asked David to do something even stranger. Let me read verses 13 through 17. But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. Hear that? May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. What do you think? If I am still alive... Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of of yours, of David, from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. In verse 17, David gives his oath. And when he finally came to power, David kept this covenant. It's one of the greatest stories in the Bible. Jonathan knew that God Almighty had called David to supplant his father. And he chose God's choice, God's king, instead of his father. And yet, he still served his father as well as he could until the day he was killed in a battle. There's a lot to think about in this passage. In other words, covenant conquered culture here. This is how it does so. Covenant trampled customary standards and traditions. It trumped everything. So it should be in our own hearts, should it not? 
The covenant of the Lord is powerful because it is of God. So his people can stand in it and stand on it and be rooted in him and not the world that we live in, which then allows for extraordinary faithfulness, no matter how wicked the world gets. Why? Because we belong to another. This kind of faithfulness is not often even recognized by the world because the world literally does not know what to do with this. But when it is seen, it speaks powerfully and deeply about who God is and what's really important. And most of the time, I'm convinced we never hear about the people who are this kind of faithful. Every once in a while we do, but most of the time, most of the time, hardly anybody even knows. You know, the best example out of myriads of examples that we could give here is the care of a spouse who has dire health needs and slow deterioration over a long period of time by the other spouse being faithful to what? Their covenant vows. They do it because they promised to. Because that's what God called them to do. And I bet you every person in this room has seen that. Hopefully in your own relationship, but probably somewhere else more than once. And it's a testimony to exactly what we're talking about here. You're not doing it to gain favor, to get something, to do whatever. You're doing it because you can stand on the covenant. It's not a moral issue. I made a promise. I follow through. We spend half our time wrangling over trying to make decisions like this. For the Christian, there are some things like this. It's not a question. David went straight to Jonathan. He said, whatever, you'll, whatever you want me to do, how, how are we going to do this? I'll be there. He says, let's go out in the field. We'll figure this out. I'm not going to that dinner. We're going to figure out a way for you to come tell me how Saul, how your dad res- responds, because I, I know how he's going to respond, but you need to see it as well. If we're going to stand together, we got to know what we're dealing with. Do you hear all that in this scene? In this whole chapter, that's what we're hearing. This whole section here, verses 18 through 23, after this reiteration and expansion of the covenant to include Jonathan's descendants. Because when the new king takes over, usually everybody that was against them is history. But here, this, this is the details of the, how the, that these two guys are going to use to determine how angry Saul really is. So I'm not going to go through each and every detail. Go outside, you shoot some arrows, where they go, I've got somebody with me. If they go past the guy, then you'll know the blah. If they shoot him short, then he goes this way, then you know he's not. And you can come back in. 
All the guys are going, oh, cool plan. The girls are going, how weird. It's a good, good idea. Okay, so then the scene switches. And here's the meal, and there's one place that's empty. This meal, Saul was there. Jonathan was there. Abner, the head honcho military guy, was there, who happened to be a member, a nephew or a cousin. David wasn't. So there's an elephant in this meal, in the room. It's a, it's a weird setting. Can you feel it? David stayed away, and he did not attend the monthly dinner. Saul, Jonathan, and Abner was there. Saul finally asked the question, Why is David not here? And Jonathan told the prearranged story that they'd come up with. While David hid in the field outside, waiting for the signal that Jonathan would come give him later. Well, Saul's anger rose and rose. And since David was not there, he took it out on his own son. In verses 30 through 34, Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame? And to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger. And he ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. What a scene. Jonathan had emptied himself. And as Paul writes in Philippians 3, verse 8, Jonathan was willing to suffer the loss of all things. Being faithful to the one who is forever faithful to us may demand that we suffer loss, even the loss of our life. There you have it. It's not health, wealth, and prosperity that's promised. In the future, glorified state, more than you could ever even dream of. But here, being faithful to the one who is forever faithful to us may demand that we suffer loss. And Jonathan and David are experiencing a sense of incredible worldly loss, especially Jonathan here. Commitment to the Lord most probably will bring some kind of cost 
but the Lord is worthy of whatever that cost may be because that's really what it boils down to. Jonathan did not place the loss of his earthly kingdom and all the glory that would come. He grew up thinking that. And he's older than David, so it's all he's heard his whole life. He did not place that loss of an earthly kingdom in the same category as truly belonging to the king of kings. He knew whom he served. It's a great hymn that says that. I know whom I have believed. And we sing that just like this, and it's a lot more serious than that. He was willing to face the great cost to his earthly life. He just had a spear hurled at him at his own dinner table with his father. Jonathan... Jonathan, what a friend. I don't know what the girl's version of this saying is. It might be saying nowadays, but you know, when, when you guys have somebody you know, you can depend on you say something like, if I was in a foxhole, I'd want you in the same one. Now, that probably came from my father's generation who got it from the generation before them, who got it from the, before them, and men who had actually gone off to war. But it is very apropos. So what in this life, then, in true life, which is what Jonathan had, what did Jonathan primarily value? True life, he knew, did not consist in securing yourself and your kingdom, but in reflecting the Lord's faithfulness in covenant relationships. Remember that Jonathan had acknowledged that the kingdom was the Lord's and therefore David's. This one, this, this one here. So his life did not need to be centered around his ambition, which is what he could get, but his life could be centered in God's providence because of what God has already given. And that is the difference, it should be the difference between every Christian and everybody who does not know Christ. And if you truly know him, then he's working things to get you there. So don't fight him on this one. This is not about here. It's not about spending everything you have to get what you want here. And Jonathan knew that. Life does not consist, and boy, this is so politically incorrect, culturally incorrect. Life does not consist in achieving your goals, but in fulfilling your promises. What? Ah! Every self-help book that has ever been mentioned, every get-rich queen, every get-rich scheme that's ever been come up with, 
every desire that we hear today is all centered around me, 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 myself. I need to do this. I'm not going to be fulfilled unless this happens. This is the way God looks at this. Life does not consist in achieving your own goals. It's really about fulfilling your promises, your covenant promises to him and how he works those out, which may be different a lot of times. Aligning yourself with his wills, and they, they go parallel, but sometimes it goes in opposite directions. That's when you need to know, oops. And that's when the decisions come. Am I going to be concerned about this, or am I going to be concerned about this? And he promises his faithfulness as you stay in his courts to get you through it, to walk with you through it, not necessarily to get you out of it because he's working other things that we have no clue how big they are. One scene left back in the field, verses 35 through 42. Now, in, in all... Honesty, this is one of the most emotional renderings anywhere in the Word of God. And it's emotional because these guys are real people who really did love God above all else. And you've got to realize that this is a watershed event in their lives. In this Scenario here, we see how God's love provides what? Peace? Yes, peace in the midst of the confusion and chaos. The signals were set. David was hidden in the field. Jonathan went out with the boy to fetch the arrows, so that probably because he knew Saul's guys were watching him, and if he went out by himself, they'd be going, oh, he's going out to meet with David. Okay, they had already thought about this, remember? That's why they made this plan. Jonathan shot the arrows and told the boy that the arrows went beyond him, which was an easy way to remember. They went beyond him, so you need to get out of here. If they'd have been short, it would have meant, oh, you can come back in. He's not really angry, but he was. So the signal was that Saul was indeed after David to kill him, and it was not safe to come anymore. Verses 39 through 42. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. And then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace. What? Go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. What is not in 
these words. There is gratitude. There is mutual affection. And by the way, in the Middle East, this kissing scene is not to be interpreted by American Western standards, okay? This is a, a way that everybody had a kiss for somebody else in some station of life. We need to make that straight. Not only gratitude and mutual affection, but incredible grief. I'm surprised Jonathan could shoot him that far when he realized how much what was going on. But again, because he believed in the God who had made covenant with him and oversaw and guarded his own covenant with David, he carried it out. He did what he needed to do. Jonathan is saying, go in peace. And yet, what are we thinking? Go in peace while Saul's trying to kill you? That sounds empty. It sounds like he doesn't really understand what's going on. No, he, this is right on target. He's saying that David can go in peace because there is peace between the two of them. Still, and there always will be. And there always was. We're going to see that. Because of their covenant. The one thing that remains steady and sure is that they know where they stand with the Lord and one another, even in the midst of the chaos and intrigue, and this is only the beginning of it all. How many of you can say with me that you really could go through whatever if you knew one person that you loved understood? We've all faced stuff like that. If God calls you to be alone, he's enough. But man, it's special if there's one person that you know that can go through it with you. And that's what's going on right here. Even though they're going to be apart, he knows in his heart. Both of them do. And that is more than enough for him. Biblical peace is not tranquility. Biblical peace is being right at the center. It's rightness at the center of things. In the midst of the turmoil. Paul writes in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then two verses later in Romans 5, he implies that the peace with God comes at the same time as the suffering which produces endurance. They're almost right together in Romans 5. And we only like to read the first part. But we know that the second part is constantly with us in this life. They go together. The Christian does not have peace because things are peaceful. Are they? But because a greater one than Jonathan has pledged his friendship to you and me, you belong to the Lord. And that's why it stands out. The calm in the midst of the storm doesn't mean you're oblivious to it. It doesn't mean you've been removed from it. It means that you have peace with your God 
and he provides that peace in your heart, when you have no clue whether this is going to turn out okay or whether this is going to be the biggest disaster and horrid situation that you've ever faced in your life. But just knowing that God knows and that he's pledged himself to you is enough. It always has been and it always will be because he is greater than anything that can come against this. Now think of what Jesus said at the Last Supper. This cup is what? The new covenant in my blood. Another way to read that is this cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood. It's the covenant bond of Jesus who speaks peace in our travails, in our disappointments, in our dangers, and even disasters. It doesn't mean that you've got the kind of joy that you don't bow down, that you don't weep, that you don't embrace, that you don't cry your heart out, that you don't cry out to the God you know is there, that you don't search out for your friend. It doesn't mean any of that. It means in the midst of that, you can have God's peace and stand or go on or stay there, whatever God's called you to do in the midst of it. And you will be okay. One of Marty and our friends from Colorado when we were there, um, the couple, she's at this moment in her last days with cancer in a hospice. And the other day, she spent probably all day calling different gal friends of hers, more or less, to say goodbye. She's the one who called everybody. Ask my wife how much that meant to her. And I saw a message in which she replied in, you know, the silly little emoticons. They weren't silly. They were the smile heart kind. And she is facing this knowing the first thing that hit me, she knows who she belongs to. And her husband does as well. And that's how they're walking through it. David and Jonathan would only meet again one more time. In chapter 23, verse 16, in a very dangerous and desperate setting. They parted with different obligations. In fact, they gave their covenant vows again there. But their covenant kept each other grounded in faithfulness to their Lord in those different settings that they were now going to be operating in. Essentially, politically against one another. I mean, Saul was trying to kill him. Jonathan was involved with Saul. Uh, they were fighting Philistines and other people in, as well, but they, they were in whole different worlds. God's covenant provides a source of help and encouragement in times of great uncertainty. God's covenant provides peace in the middle of confusion and chaos. 
God's covenant reminds us that we as God's people may have to make costly commitments. God's covenant proves to be the solid ground needed to act with uncommon faithfulness. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we approach you in Christ Jesus, your Son, in Him, with thankful hearts that have been enlarged because of the knowledge of how great your commitment is if you sent your own Son to accomplish what we could not accomplish on our own. Lord, you've called us to different paths in this life with different joys, different griefs, different sorrows, and yet as your body of Christ, we experience those together, and we thank you for that. God, we thank you that we can meet other Christians and know and ha- know them and have an identity immediately because we're in Christ together. And it's times like that that we realize how powerful your work is in your people and how it's always been that powerful down through church history. We've seen Old Testament examples here in these passages. Oh God, you are so faithful. And we pray that that you would forgive us as we confess our, our, our unfaithful, cowardly hearts. And yet you know our weakness and you meet us right there. Thank you that you are building us. That you are showing yourself faithful in situations that we would never even want to think about. And that your plan, even though we don't understand it all, we know that you are good. We know that you are holy and righteous and just and merciful and gracious. And we know that you know what is best. Father, we pray that as we walk, that we would bring honor and glory to you as your spirit works in us to conform us to the image of your son. And we ask these things in his precious name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. You're dismissed.